That's a pretty nice reception. Nice place you have here. <laughs> Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Caroline Baum, and I'm delighted to be here with you today for what I think is going to be a very inspirational experience.、Um, Elizabeth, you, if you'd been here yesterday, I suppose we would have had to call this talk "Heat Pray Love." <laughs> you, poor Elizabeth, was driving back from the、um, south coast yesterday and spent most of yesterday in a car.、Um, so she deserves a medal, I think, for being here today.、Um, Most of you will have been asked when you booked your tickets whether you would like to ask a question today, and so I'll be incorporating some of those questions into our conversation. And I hope that those of you that don't get your question asked will still get some of the answers that you're seeking from the conversation that we're about to have. And at the end of this session, Elizabeth will be、um, in the foyer and looks forward to saying hello to you. And there will be some pre-signed books.、Um, her, her new book, which is her great-grandmother's cookbook,、um, which will be available for sale. So you will get a chance to say hello then.、Um, you know you've made it when your best-selling book is satirised by Barry Humphreys. <laughs> Not to mention The Simpsons, and also our own local comedian Judith Lucy, who wrote a book called "Drink, Smoke, Pass Out" in your I honor. I saw it in a bookstore. <laughs> I have to say, I think that's one of the best ones I've seen yet.、Yeah. It's not bad. Very nice.、Um, I, I approve. But given that the talk today is supposed to be about life after Eat, Pray, Love, that maybe it would be useful for us to go back to before Eat, Pray, Love. In order that we can kind of understand the trajectory that you've been on a little better,、um, and I guess I wanted to start by asking you what your definition of success was before this tsunami kind of hit you. So, when you were growing up on、mm. your father's Christmas tree farm with two goats and honeybees and a television that didn't work very well, what was your dream and what was your idea of? How to go about that?、Um, I, I always say that I'm very lucky because I've only ever wanted to do one thing with my life, and I've only ever been good at one thing. And it's—I think it's rare that you get both of those pieces, right?、Um, I, I, I don't—I'm not interested in anything but writing, and I'm not good at anything but writing. So it makes your path extremely clear. You know, I have friends who are multi-talented. And they're cursed by it, and I'm not. I, I do think of it as a curse.、Um, they're pulled in in many different directions. That's never been a problem for me.、Um, and so, it's been pretty simple trajectory. There's been so much other stuff in my life that I've made messy and complicated. But for some reason, the writing path has been straight and narrow、um, from about the age of nine on,、um, maybe even earlier. And the the idea was to just、um, write as much as I could. Start, I started sending short stories out for publication when I was about 18.、Um, I collected rejection notes for six years.、Um, that was okay. My goal was to get published before I was dead. And people, <laughs> people in my family live a really long time, so I thought I got a long arc here. And it's not like, you know, it's not like being a dancer where if you haven't done it by the time you're 22, you know,、um, I, I, I knew that. that You only mellow more into your work as a writer. So I would, took the long view, and、um, and and really, honestly, from the beginning, my only goal was that I someday wanted to have something 
published somewhere. I'm interested in this because I know that in your 20s, you left Connecticut and you went off to Wyoming and you became a cowgirl. And you, I think, cooked on a ranch and you did various kind of very physical, very masculine, very yeah. rusticated things. And um, I wondered whether, in fact, you were on a kind of personal quest there that you could talk a little bit about exploring that masculine world because you were a tomboy, weren't you? No, that, you were. no look, um, <laughs> no, I wasn't and I'm not. And, um, I, and in fact, I was on a quest to make a man out of myself. I think that's really what I was trying to do. Um, I come from very tough people and I'm not a tough person. And I've always felt that it was a liability. Um, I, my mother's tough, my dad's tough, my sister's macho. I mean, they're like people, <laughs> my, my whole Gilbert side of the family, my uncle refers to them all as oxen. You know, um, the Olsen side of the family are all Swedish immigrants, so they're like lazy. And no, I'm just kidding, they're not at all. They're too, and I always felt like weak. You know, I always felt like I was the weakest link in in every family gathering. I was a crybaby and a sensitive and emotional, and um, and I wasn't a pretty kid, but I wanted to be. And um, and, and somehow I just wanted to overcome that sense of um, helplessness. And I think that's what drew me to to the West and to ranching, <laughs> which I wasn't very good at, but I made friends, you know. Well, and you, you discovered people who were incredibly competent and who lived by a very different set of values, and, and you wrote about those people very mem memorably, and that's why I was sort of leading you, hoping that you were going to talk about um, Eustace Conway, mm. because he is such a, an extraordinary character. And I was just wondering, for people who haven't read your books from before Eat, Pray, Love, whether you could talk a little bit about what you learned from encountering someone like Eustace Conway in terms of values. Um, Eustace Conway, uh, for those of you who haven't read it, is, is a guy who I profiled in a book called The Last American Man. Um, he was one of the most fascinating people I'd ever met. I did a magazine article about him for GQ. He was the brother of a cowboy who I met on the ranch in Wyoming. And even among that set, where people were pretty macho and pretty tough, they were all like, and then there's Eustace. You know, he was like sort of at the Navy SEAL level of um, outdoorsman. And he had left his family's suburban home when he was 17, moved into the woods of North Carolina and has been living there ever since. He's a utopian, he's a visionary, he's, um, he's a tyrant. Um, he's a very complicated, difficult person who I spent probably four years of my life with um, writing this book about him. And um, came away came away with a very different idea of our heroes. I mean, I think I started the book with a real sense of hero worship and came away. Um, there's a line that Ursula uh, Le Guin says that she said, um, the other side of heroism is very sad. Women and servants know this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and when I was closer to his life and you saw the sort of, the sadness of, of his um, ferociousness um, and the casualties of the people who admired him and followed him into the woods and... and just the complications of, of being so grandiose. Um, it, it, it tempered me for, for hero worship. Because it's interesting, in the book, you de-romanticize the idea of a man who lives in the woods because you say that when people in cities talk about the woods, they get this sort of nostalgic look and they go, oh, the woods, the woods. And Eustace's view of life in the woods is harsh and brutal. But yeah. then you tell this story about seeing him talking about his life 
to a group of school children. And that crystallises something for you about authenticity. So when you saw Eustace Conway talking with these children, you saw authenticity that you wanted, didn't you? Well, he, he's incredibly compelling um, and, and very real. Um, and his values are earnest. Um, I don't think you can be a fundamentalist of any stripe if you don't have earnest values. Uh, he, he believes quite rightly that we are driving this car off a cliff environmentally um, on the planet Earth and that America is leading that car chase over the edge of the precipice. He wants to transform the way we think about resources. He wants to transform the way that we think about nature. Um, and he has this kind of messianic ability, especially with young people. They're awestruck by him, um, and it's beautiful to watch. And whenever you see him in action like that, it's incredibly moving, and it's incredibly stirring, and it's incredibly unrealistic, and it's incredibly unpragmatic, and it comes with um, a whole other sort of darkness as well um, that, that I needed to get away from after a while. Because I was going to ask you whether you think you're very susceptible to charismatic leader figures. I'm susceptible I, I, to everything. <laughs> But, are, but you, yes. are you a follower? Oh, hell yeah. What, what do you have? What are you selling? I'm buying it. <laughs> what do you believe in? I believe it. You know, what's the fad? I'm drinking acai juice right now and pomegranates. Like, whatever. I'm, I'm the permeable membrane. You know, I'm a, I'm a cancer. Um, I, I just believe I'm very gullible. Um, it's why I think it's funny that I was a journalist mm. um, because I think it, it doesn't really make for great journalism. Um, <laughs> I believe anything people tell me about themselves, <laughs> and then I report it, you know? Um, <laughs> like, people, you know, people would be like, I'm the best six-string guitar player the East Coast of the United States has ever produced, and I'll be like, this guy is the best six, you know, and I fact-checked it because I asked him, and he told me. Um, <laughs> you know, and there's a, you know, that's kind of just how I am, and I'm always going to be that way. Um, there's, there's nothing for it, really. You know, like, I keep waiting to... I mean, the world has beaten a bit of it out of me, but I come back for more all the time. Um, and on the other hand, there's great benefits of being like that. Mm. You know, there's a great openness, and um, people trust me and should. Um, and, you know, it, there's that sort of feeling. That In a sense, you've kept your sense of wonder. I, yeah, I would say so. I think, I think the scariest thing for me about going through depression, um, when I went through my divorce and, and the subsequent despair was having that dulled down. Um, you know, the, what depression does to you and what despair does to you is it makes everything in the world into sawdust mm. and you lose all the shimmer and all the marvel and all the wonder. And, and that made me feel more unfamiliar to myself than, than anything I could imagine. Mm. We may come back to that. Um, just staying with the journalism for a moment, one of the things that really strikes me about that journalism period of your life, again, before you pray love, is that you were often the only woman in a very macho world. You yeah. like to go into those very masculine worlds. So, yeah. for example, one of the pieces that you wrote that got a lot of attention at GQ was about a bar, the Coyote Ugly Bar, which subsequently that story got turned into a movie. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you were looking for in terms of what, what interested you about masculinity? Um, I think I had, I think I had to spend my twenties solving it. Um, I, I like men. Um, and I think that that interested me because I don't think that's necessarily, 
I don't think everybody necessarily feels that. I don't think every woman necessarily feels that way about men. Um, I enjoy the company of men. I grew up with uh, a lot of uncles, and they were all, to my mind, incredibly funny and, and very charming, and their attention was worth the world. And they were, um, they were great storytellers. Um, I, I mean, my, my, weirdly, my happiest memories of my family were when everybody was still a, um, an actual alcoholic and not a recovered alcoholic. And they... <laughs> used to have these family gatherings and my uncles and my grandfather and my great-grandfather, I mean, I, like I said, people live a long time in my family despite how much they drink and they, um, they, they were just brilliant and, and, and alluring to me um, and I felt like in those moments when I was a little kid and I got to sit in the corner of the kitchen they didn't know I was there and I was listening to the dirty jokes and the raunchy stories and the, and the outrageousness of men, um, they just seemed more interesting to me and I'm sorry to say this, and I do regret this, they seemed more interesting to me than the women who were, now I see, taking care of everything while these men were having a very good time, being <laughs> extremely irresponsible. And the women were being very responsible. And responsibility isn't alluring mm. in the same way as irresponsibility. And, um, and so I wanted to be with those people at that table. I didn't want to be with the people who were making the casseroles and washing the dishes and paying the bills and raising the children. I wanted to be with, the, with those guys. Um, and so I spent my 20s mostly with those guys um, and more identified with them. And, and I think I did so both at a gain and at a loss um, for myself. I think it, they were interesting years. They were exciting years. Um, but I denied... There was a lot that I wasn't noticing uh, about the world, and there was a lot that I wasn't respecting, and um, there was a lot that I wasn't paying attention to in my, my own self. So uh, I'm curious about, given what you've just said, about how when you come to Eat, Pray, Love, the voice and the tone, the very um, intimate, very conversational tone, as if you're talking to a girlfriend, yeah. um, how you arrived at that feminine sensibility in that feminine voice, given what you've just said? I had, I had it um, forced out of me through tremendous pain, weirdly. Um, I came at it through a pathway of pain. Um, I was so disconnected. I'd made such mistakes. I had um, chosen so poorly in really important ways <laughs> in my life, um, in, in really important interpersonal ways. And I had denied, you know, in trying to be tough and trying to be cool and trying to be one of the guys, I, I had just, just buried some very important feelings and emotions. And, and I feel like by the time it came to the point to write Eat, Pray, Love, the only way I could write it was with that sort of raw earnestness um, and, and, and honesty. And I did write it to a girlfriend. One of the rules that, that I have as a writer, um, that I got from my older sister, who's, who's a really brilliant writer, is never sit down to write anything, um, whether it's a newspaper article or a novel or anything, um, until you know precisely who the one person is that you're speaking to and have it be one person mm -hmm. only. And each one of my books has been written to a different person. And it's a really important decision as I'm beginning a project who it's going to be because it affects the way you speak. We speak to different people differently. And so I wrote the entirety of Eat, Pray, Love to my friend Darcy, who lives in Brooklyn. She's a, um, she's a very funky hipster Christian 
Um, <laughs> she and I had, her parents were Lutheran ministers and she became a punk rocker and then kind of drifted back toward Christianity, um, but in a very kind of skeptical and, and, and complicated way. Um, she's a single mom who went through searing divorce. She's been through terrible depression. She's a novelist whose work I really admire. And she's somebody who in the year or two prior to my going on the journey, I'd become very close with, and we'd spent a lot of time talking about the issues that subsequently became discussed in Eat, Pray, Love. So when it came time to write the book, it was a letter to Darcy. And so when people say to me, I feel like you were speaking directly to me, I'm like, well, I kind of was speaking directly to somebody, and that's what you're hearing, mm -hmm. is that intimacy of, of, of an actual conversation and not um, just writing out into the empty world. Given that intimacy that you create in the book so memorably, I'm just wondering, Liz, what the price is for that degree of candor, whether when you wrote it, given what you were saying before about how gullible you are, yeah. whether you had absolutely no idea that in creating this intimate voice and in speaking to us all this way, you were laying yourself maybe too bare? You think? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said to me, they read the book, a friend of mine read the book in galleys, you know, before it was published, and she gave it back to me, and we, she took me out to a cafe, and she said, are you really comfortable with putting all this out in the world? It's really intimate. I'm paging through it going, it, you th is it? Do you think, you know, like, I really was, I just felt like this is the story, this is what happened, and um, would I have written it that way had I known that 10 million people were going to read it? you know, I wouldn't have been able to because I no. would have not been thinking about my friend Darcy. I would have been thinking about that audience and, um, and it wouldn't have occurred. Um, I don't regret it um, at, in the least. And, and I feel like is there, there's a little price to be paid for it, but it's the one that I'm, I'm contented to pay. Um, the benefits of what has come into my life from that journey are, are so staggering um, that, that whatever inconveniences may have arisen from it, I would be ashamed to even mention um, because they're so overshadowed by the great blessing. And it really, like, shame on me if I have all this tremendous good fortune and then say, like, oh, it's, people think they know me. Um, you know what? People think they know me because they freaking do, you know? Like... <laughs> That's what people come up to me, they're like, I, I feel like I know you. I'm like, you do. If you read this and you read Committed, you do know me, you know? Um, I can't fault anybody for feeling that way. So when you talk about the blessings, let's just acknowledge then yeah. these blessings. What is the single best thing that has happened to you as a result of this book? The book or the journey that led to the book? Okay, the journey. Um, the, the best thing that, that's happened to me from the journey was the four months in India. Um, and the best thing that came of that was spending time needing to negotiate a peace resolution between me and myself. Um, and it was arduous. Um, it was like the Yalta conference. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was really painful and difficult, but it needed, you know, there was really a, it was a moment of reckoning. And I feel like my whole life hinges from before that time and after. Mm. Um, and, it, and it really was, you know, I reached this place um, that I slip from constantly, but still at least I kind of know how to access it now, which is that like all of us, um, you know, I always say that, you know, my, my head is a neighborhood you wouldn't want to walk around alone in at night. Um, and most of us, I think, have that head. Um, and 
and you know I have demonic voices uh, th that we all have and I abuse myself and I attack myself and I demean myself and I accuse myself and I you know I have this that sort of courtroom drama going on constantly and it wasn't ex you know it was all that work of meditation and all that work of reconciliation and all that work of self-acceptance finally kind of allowed me to discover this other voice that I've got um, who's the mom of all those insane children who live in my head. Um, and I've really come to think of it as that what I thought were demonic monsters are actually just um, very anxious orphans. Um, you know, and there, you know, it wasn't until I realized that they're just scared. It's just a bunch of fear. And somewhere above all of that, there's a mom in a minivan saying like, shh, <laughs> mommy's driving. Um, <laughs> you know, ta -ta 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 -ta, everybody quiet down, you know, and, and that, you know, finding that place to just be able to sort of calm myself rather than need to distract myself mm. or impale myself on somebody with the hopes that they would save me from myself or run away from somebody with the fear that they had destroyed me or, you know, like all of this madness that defined my life up until that point. Um, and, and the, pray, you know, the, the, the value of that is beyond rubies. Um, there are many writers in the audience today, I know, um, and so I just wondered whether we could explore that voice, that judgmental voice, because I know that many, many writers, all writers, I think, are afflicted with that voice. Yeah. And um, I read an interview with you in which you said that, you know, the persistent voice, um, the judgmental voice in your head was saying, as you were writing Eat, Pray, Love, this sucks. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. So can you just talk about the process of self-forgiveness and how you learned yeah. to quieten that voice and, and bring the voice of that nurturing mother forward? Yeah, it's another orphan who lives there, right? Um, you think it's this big, powerful judge in a, in a cloak and a wig, but it's actually just a really freaked out little kid who's just very afraid of being vulnerable because when you present something of yourself um, in any form into the world, it's scary. And the thing that wants to protect you from that is going to tell, like stop you from doing it um, by any means necessary. And one of the best means is by telling you that you're, you're not worthy of, of, of even attempting it. And that'll, that'll shut you up. Right. Um, <laughs> and it, and it often works. And I feel like there's some of it is motherliness. You have to be very kind to yourself and very forgiving to yourself. Some of it is stubbornness. Um, I'm stubborn about wanting to do this work and you have to be more stubborn than that voice. Um, I, I stubbornly love and respect this work and you have to sort of out endure it, you know, um, it, it'll, it'll tie, that voice will tire itself out hopefully sooner than the part of you that just insists on being heard and insists on, on trying. And I, and I think really one of the big breakthroughs I had as a writer was when I wrote Stern Men, my first novel, which was very intimidating for me. I'd never written anything of that length. I didn't know whether I could sustain fiction to that level. It was writing about a culture I didn't really know about. I set the bar very high. And there were tears on every page of that manuscript. And, and I remember, you know, being at that point of just not even wanting to open up the computer because you can't even look at it because it's so awful. And, and then I had this really stubborn moment one day where I just said, I am not going to be somebody who dies with 75 pages of a novel in my desk drawer. I simply will not be that. And it doesn't have to be good, it just has to be done. Mm. And for that, I'm grateful to my mother because that was a motto that we grew up with that she always said is done is better than good. And, um, and it was, you just, I just thought, 
if you don't, you know, and I was always talking to the, you're always talking to the critics who are coming, you know, they're coming. And I remember sort of as I was writing that novel, just saying to the critics, write your own fucking book if you don't like it. <laughs> you know, like, this is mine. I'm sorry. It's the best I can do. It may not be good, but it's all I've got. Here it is. Leave me alone. Get a real job, you know? Um, and, and, and that's the sort of, you have to push hard like that. Um, and, and, and be relentless about wanting to be out there. And at the same time, not complain about how hard this is. Would you like to tell the story about your friend and their letter to Werner Herzog? Oh, this is one of my favorite stories. Um, yeah, I get really tired of people complaining about how difficult the arts are. Um, it's fairyland that we live in, you know, um, and... Working in a steel mill is a difficult job, mm. you know? Um, writing can be a frustrating job, but it's... I mean, can we get serious about, you know, really? Um, I, I just feel like sometimes, you know, us artistic souls can be a little overdramatic and we, you know, make it worse than it is. And it's just, it's challenging. Um, but everything that's challenging is worth doing, but it's not impossible. And, uh, and there was a wonderful story. I have a friend who's an Italian independent filmmaker, and he wrote a letter... Um, in his 20s that he, he got a response from, from the great German filmmaker Werner Herzog, um, who's sort of a fascinating character in his own right. Um, but he wrote a letter to Werner saying, um, I'm incredibly frustrated. I, I'm really, it's hard to live in Italy. There's no arts funding. Um, I can't get anybody to make my movie. I can't get anybody to read my script. I can't get any actors to come to auditions. Like just a, a litany of complaints about how difficult it was to make films. And Werner wrote him back a letter, and the first line was, and he has it framed, I've seen it. He said, stop complaining, nobody wants to hear it. Um, and, and he said, it's not your fault. It's not the, sorry, it's not the world's fault mm. that you want to be a filmmaker. And it's not the world's responsibility to like what you do. It's not the world's responsibility to fund what you do. It is your passion. It is your responsibility. You don't have money to make a film? Go steal a camera. Um, like, he just laid it down. He said, you're doing this voluntarily. You want to be an artist voluntarily. Don't keep waiting for somebody to give you permission or to give you funding or to do anything. And stop whining mm. and go make a movie. And don't bother writing me letters about how hard it is. And, and that's another kind of... Resilience, and that's why Werner Herzog has made what 197,000 movies. Um, you know, each one different and each one complicated in its own way. Let's talk a little bit about some of the um, sort of public aspects of the aftermath of Eat, Pray, Love. I like um, the word aftermath. <laughs> um, Tsunami. We were talking backstage a little bit about um, Oprah's interview yesterday with Lance Armstrong, and. You have also been a guest on Oprah, and I'm very grateful to the fact to, that today you're not giving answers that are just one word long. Like, <laughs> I've like never you. given a one word long answer to anything. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to do that. Uh, Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, what was she like? She's amazing. Um, I won't hear a bad word spoken about her. I think she's fabulous, and I think, um, as I was saying to you, Backstage, I think she very much cares about the lives of women, and she takes those lives seriously. And um, there aren't, you know, that's not often done. And she's mm. demeaned for that. Um, but but she's got a mission, um, and and she's brilliant, and she's she's funny, she's witty, and it's incredibly scary to go on the show. Um, you don't meet her beforehand. She likes to keep it very fresh, which means that the second you sit down in this chair. 
you have this huge speed bump that you have to get over that suddenly there's Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> you know? And so she's asking you a question and I'm like, oh my God, her eyes are so big and her, <gasps> you know, like you're just, you're trying to take in like, you know, look at her. Wow. I like that. I wonder how much that ring costs, you know? You're, and you have to really focus. Like she's asking you something and she's so engaging and warm and makes, you know, um, I, I said to her at one point, you're really good at this. <laughs> you should you should think about this as a career. And, um, but she's also, you know, she's running the world. And so her boundaries are, are very, um, established and very appropriate. Um, she made me feel in the first 10 minutes of the interview that we were the best friends who had ever met. And she does that with everybody. And of course we're not, but of course I thought we were. And, um, and so when they do the commercial break, she doesn't talk to you. And it's not because she's arrogant. It's because she's got, she's opening up a new school in Africa or something. She's busy. And so she's got producers all around her and she's looking at cards and she's running her empire. And I'm sort of sitting there in the chair like this. And I don't, not comfortable sitting next to someone and not speaking. So she's sort of looking at her index cards and the clock is ticking down to the commercial. And I go, do you like my shoes? (laughs) Because I was like, make conversation on whatever's there, right? I was like, do you like... And she looks over and she says, oh, yes, they're very nice. And uh, goes back to her notes. And I said, they're not mine. (laughs) They're my friends. They're my friend Cheryl's. She lent them to me. She says, oh, that's that's nice, sweetheart. You know, she goes back to her thing. And I go, they're from Paris. (laughs) Wait, it's worse. She didn't respond. And I said, that's in France. (laughs) And then she took her reading glasses off and she just looked at me and she said, is it? (laughs) And later in the show, somebody in the audience was saying that they were, um, they had gotten inspired by Pray Love to go do a marathon in Paris. And it's in the clip. You can see it. Oprah just turns to me and she goes, that's in France. <laughs> and it's out of context. It makes no sense. And I was like, <laughs> but, uh, you see, I think it's so telling that you would share this story. With us. <laughs> I would keep that to myself. <laughs> oh, it's too good. It's too good to not, it's too, uh, never let a little humiliation get in the way of <laughs> sharing a good story. Well, since we're on a little bit of a celebrity role here, mm. I, I suppose we should ask you about Julia Roberts and about what the experience of meeting Julia is, yeah. because she's another person who's sort of like Oprah. She's yeah. almost a sort of one-name one brand. Yeah. Um, she is luminescent. Um, she's lovely. She's very private. She's very professional. And... I didn't have much interaction with her, to be honest. Um, And I was kind of happy for that in a way. Uh, They, when it came to making the film, I just felt like another thing that is, I'm gonna list all the things that annoy me about, when when writers complain about what happened to their books when they were made into films, I always think it's weird because you sold it. Um, And it's like selling your house 
and then driving by your house every day and being like, they took down the pergola. You know, <laughs> you sold it. It's not yours anymore. You're like, once you sell it, you know, it's out of your hands. And I feel like once you sell it, you should relinquish it. And, and, and ex in exchange for a, a handsome sum of money that makes your life better, you should let them do their jobs and stay out of their way. And so that's the attitude that I took toward it. And, and so I didn't really want to throw myself into mm. the production, but they asked me, invited me to come to Rome and to watch the filming. And I got to meet Javier Bardem and I got to, I ate dinner. <laughs> I ate dinner across from him. We shared a fork. I'm just saying. <laughs> That is not a euphemism. I wish that it was, but it's not. Um, we, he's beautiful human being. Anyway, Julia is also very, very beautiful. Um, but, but, but the thing about her, so I met her and she, she also didn't want to meet me because mm. she had created her own idea. Mm. And so she didn't want to meet me until the, the filming was halfway finished and she'd already kind of established and owned herself on the stage, which I completely understood. Um, so we met very briefly and she was gorgeous and there's absolutely nothing on this planet that can prepare you for what that face looks like from this distance. She, I mean, we're all familiar. We know Julia Roberts' faces over the years better than we know our own and there is no picture I've ever seen of her. There is no moment I've ever seen of her that is nearly as beautiful as what she actually looks like. It's crazy. Um, you, I walked in and I looked at her and I just said, you're so pretty. <laughs> and it's just she's so pretty. And she's like, thank you. I was like, I'm no, pe no people probably told you that before, but really. Um, you didn't she's tell like, her about your shoes, did I didn't you? tell her about it. I didn't have a chance to get into the shoes. <laughs> um, she's, she just is in sort of a cone of light. And, um, and she looks like... A, a fairy and she couldn't have another job besides being a movie star did she put on the pounds to do the italian she she didn't um i don't think so i mean there is a scene where she's trying to button her yeah, but pants she doesn't look like and it's... i'm like you call that a muffin top mm. honey let me show you what it uh, no I, I i don't think she no. she wanted to do that to herself are you contractually obliged to say that you like the film no but I am contractually forbidden to say that I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it, so it's easy. I, li I like it. I saw it. it makes me, I've seen it a number of times. It makes me cry. Um, it's, it's so surreal to me that it's almost beyond like or not like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, can't have an, I can't have a neutral opinion on it. Um, it's, it's just like the first time she opens her mouth, like one of the first things she says in the movie She's going to visit Katutlia, she's on her bicycle, and then they flash back, and she, she goes to the medicine man in Indonesia, and she says, hi, my name is Liz Gilbert. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's so weird. I'm like, you're Julia Roberts. That's crazy. <laughs> Everybody knows you're Julia Roberts. <laughs> no one's going to believe that. <laughs> Wild. Um, but I, lo I, I love it. I thought it was gorgeous. It's now, sweet. one of the other um, sort of honors, I suppose, that gets bestowed on you when you um, achieve what you've achieved is you get invited to give a talk at TED. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, your TED talk about creativity and genius and about sort of how to deal with expectations, unrealistic expectations, and put those aside in order to keep working is one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. Um, and I know it's a source of great inspiration to a lot of writers. How did you come to the theory that you posit in that talk? And could you just give us a little sort of synopsis for those who haven't 
Sure. Um, the the theory is, it's just a. I was talking about um, creativity and, and and madness and despair and and the Western obsession with the idea of the um, the artist who becomes a victim to their own work um, and the way that we have romanticized that, the capital R German romanticization of, of the artist and what a dangerous idea that is and how that's not, um, I think it's an idea that's literally claimed lives. Um, I think that there are a lot of books that haven't been written because of that idea and there's a lot of poetry that hasn't been written and there's a lot of artists who have died younger than they may have needed to because of that idea. Um, and we, we support that idea because we kind of love it. It's our favorite story about the arts. Um, and I was looking for other models for how to think about creativity that, that maybe predated that or came from other societies. And that led me on a search to the classical idea of, mm. of the arts. And that led me to a Roman idea, which was that, um, you know, there was the word genius um, to the Romans did not mean that somebody was brilliant. It meant that somebody had a genius and a genius was kind of like an elf who lives in the walls of your house um, and who assists you on your work. And it's a collaboration between you, the craftsman, and this thing called a genius, which is just this kind of mysterious other being um, who you are negotiating your work with. And it takes a lot of pressure off the artist <laughs> because everybody knew that um, it wasn't totally up to you, that the work may have failed because your genius was not on the job that day. Um, or the work may have, you know, you also don't get that sort of crazed narcissism that um, the work wasn't entirely your creation either. Um, that there's some sort of a relationship that, that exists between you and what I also call the mystery. Um, and that that just feels like a healthier and certainly more interesting idea than the, the notion of the singular great genius artist who... Um, you know, who, who is above us all and therefore is also, you know, to be brought down and destroyed by their angst and their suffering. And, um, you know, I've just sort of had it with that. Um, I, and I think it, it's time to kind of think about things differently. So the speech was, was speaking to that and speaking to my own encounters with that mystery. Um, and I think anybody who has ever made anything, um, which is probably most people in this audience, know that you brush up against that sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as rational as we may be, there are moments when, when, when we do work that we can't necessarily account for, um, you know, where we slip from our own labor into suddenly moving on that moving sidewalk through the airport. There's something under you that's sort of pulling you along. Um, and it's not you, um, but it's related to you. It's interacting with you. And those are, you know, that's the big magic. Um, and, and that's the, the beauty of, of that path is the moments where you get to have that. It doesn't always last. Mm. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't always show up. And the stubbornness is showing up yourself, um, whether your genius is in the room or not. Because the idea is, isn't it, that, that there's a sort of contract between you and your, is it your unconscious or your subconscious? I can never remember. I, can, I think unconscious is when you're hitting the head with a hammer. Um, oh, okay. So subconscious is when you can't you. remember why you keep hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. Right. So the idea is that you show up, and if you keep showing up, yeah. then your subconscious will keep its part of the bargain, and it will show up too. Whereas if you don't show up, then you don't know whether your subconscious is there or not. That's the one way to guarantee it won't work, mm. is to just not show up. Mm. Um, and, and the best you can hope for is... And I think the angels reward 
people who are at their desk at six in the morning every day. Um, and after a while, they take pity on you and they, <laughs> they throw you a bone, you know? Um, and, and that's a feeling that I've had too, where I've been like, guys, <laughs> three months I've been sitting here, you know? Um, and eventually, you know, something happens, something gets loosened up and, and, and comes through. Now, the, the process of giving a TED talk is, from what I understand, because there is a TED alumnus in the audience here today, I know, a fairly um, stressful experience. Yeah. And over a fairly protracted period of time. It's terrifying. And, and those of you who don't know what TED is, it's a, um, it's a speaking series that's now in its 26th or 27th year that has started in Long Beach, California, um, where they just get together 50 people a year and each person is given 18 minutes to give the speech of their lifetime on the subject that they know the most about or care the most about. Um, the audience is or consists of Nobel laureates and um, innovators and venture capitalists. A bit and, like here today. Um, yeah, just like the normal audience who shows up to hear me speak, a lot of Nobel laureates. And, um, <laughs> and it's incredibly intimidating. And um, the one thing that I've found spoken, um, speaking to anybody who has ever given a TED Talk is that everyone there agrees that um, they all felt like they were the only person who shouldn't have been invited. Um, because it's a, really it's a really intimidating group of people. I mean, you're looking out and Bill Gates is watching you speak um, and waiting for you to impress him. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's scary. Um, and I was in tears two hours before I gave that talk um, in, in my hotel room, really, really regretting. I mean, beyond regret, just saying you have done an incredibly foolish thing to have accepted this invitation. And this is going to be very humiliating, especially because the day before I spoke, everyone was speaking on subjects of science and technology and robotics and genetics. And I was speaking about basically fairies. Um, and you can feel when you watch the talk, you can feel they're not into it at first. Like they're the first, like they see where I'm going with the fairies and they're like, oh. and then like they, you know, I broke them down, but oh, it, like, a standing ovation. but it was, Come on. but it, for a while it was, I was talking to a very cold room, you know, like it didn't start warmly. And the other thing about, you know, it's not a self-selecting audience. I mean, you guys are here because presumably, you know, either someone dragged you here or you came <laughs> because you like what I do. And that's an audience of people who had half of them had never heard of me. So, so you have to introduce yourself mm. and kind of, it's really, it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, I was, never want to do it again. Was there any follow-up or anything that span off it that was a particularly interesting or unexpected thing? The thing is, when people... I, it gave me a different audience because most people only know me from Eat, Pray, Love. Most people who didn't... Well, even some people who did read Eat, Pray, Love, but a, a lot of people who will diminish or dismiss that book as, as chick lit, whatever that means, or just, you know, they have an idea about me based on that book. And so often now I'll find that I'm at an event and somebody will come up to me and I know what they're going to say when they begin with, um, you know, I'm not really the typical person who would like you, but uh, I saw your TED talk, you know, and like they really need to let you know that they're a lot smarter than people who like you. Um, <laughs> And, and I don't think they understand how terribly insulting that is to me and the people who like me. Um, but, but they, you know, there's people who want to just distinguish themselves from, from that crowd. And that, and that Ted, Ted talk brought me those fans. Mm. <laughs> Yay. You were, you were also in terms of pressure and kind of a burden of responsibility. You were named by time magazine as one of the hundred most influential people, um, in the world. 
what does that feel like, and what do you do with that? I've done nothing with it, and um, <laughs> and they need to pick a hundred people every year. Now that I know how hard it is for them, because after you've done that for years and years and years, you can't have Oprah Winfrey every single time, and so they're like pretty desperate. I mean, pretty desperate, really. Like you get, I start getting emails now from the editors of Time six months in advance saying we really need. And they're always like, we really need women, you know. We really need uh, people who aren't, you know, techno people. We really need. So, um, uh, still, it's a great honor. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to be diminishing it. But that year was the year that I kind of hid. Um, so uh, that was kind of the culmination. I think that was sort of at the peak of everything. I went to the event with my dad, which was very fun. I got to introduce him to Martha Stewart and people like that, which was exciting for him. And um, and. Uh, I went home and never, really never thought about it again. Because, I mean, judging from your TED Talk performance, which is very polished and you look very casual and very relaxed and very at ease and, and the way you are here today, I'm just thinking one could be forgiven for mistaking you for an extrovert. Oh, but, I am. No, I, I but, well, but, but presumably... I'm an introvert trapped in an extrovert's body. Right. Because um, to be a writer, you do need to be able to, yeah. to face the solitude and yeah. not always be out there getting the love yeah. from an audience. So do you find that difficult to sort of withdraw? Um, I find it difficult to... It's not like from my public that I find <laughs> it difficult to withdraw. It's from... I have a big... I have a large, lot of... Fr- you know... Personally, I have um, people in my life I care about a lot and, and spend a lot of time with and invest a lot of energy in. Um, I have a, a group of friends who mean the world to me, um, and, and they take more of my time than, you know, I mean, this is fun, and this is easy, and this is an afternoon, and it's a delight. Um, you know, your friends who are going through serious problems in their lives you know, obviously you need to be there for them in a more serious way, or your friends who you just love and want to enjoy. And the hard thing for me is setting that boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to say, I'm not accepting any speaking engagements for the year 2011. That's done and done. You know, um, it's harder to say, I'm not, you're not going to hear from me for about six months. Um, and please don't be offended, but I will never write a book if I am going out to dinner. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, that's hard. And it's mm-hmm. painful for me um, because I love them and, and I want to be there, but it doesn't work any other way. You need some of those boundaries of Oprah's. You need I need the index kind of, cards yeah. and the looking yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's just, since we're talking about friends, um, let's just backtrack to Eat, Pray, Love, and maybe you can just give us a kind of a little update on Wyan. How's she doing? Oh, she's doing splendidly. I was in Bali last year and I saw her. Um, she's doing great. She's got a fancy car. Um, she's got her business thriving. She hasn't moved. She's still in the same place. You can find her right next to the post office in Ubud. Um, she's looking gorgeous. She, the coolest thing about her, aside from the fact that she's really financially stable now um, in, in ways that she wasn't before and, and that she continues to kind of reap the boon of Eat, Pray, Love in a way that's really been helpful to her and her daughter, especially as a single woman in in Indonesia. Um, But she's become an advocate for dispossessed people. Um, She 
you know, those of you who are familiar with Bali, and I know many of you probably are, know that each one of the villages in Bali is run by something called a banjar, um, which is sort of the village council. Um, mm. It tends to be men. Well, it's always men. And she has a certain amount of authority now as a landowner and a business owner and um, a woman who has some celebrity. Um, she takes on cases where she feels that people in the village aren't being treated right. Um, she goes and makes, you know, comes to their defense. Um, she looks after elderly people who, um, you know, she feels have been neglected by the community. She demands that they be paid attention to. Um, she's really become this really passionate social activist. And the story that I love is that uh, an American woman moved to her home village, not Ubud, but a much smaller and more provincial village where she comes from, and, um, and happened to be a, a lesbian and was living with her Indonesian lover. And this wasn't going over well. Um, in, in the village, there's a lot of discrimination, and also they didn't like that it was a white mm. woman and an Indonesian woman, and they didn't like that it was two women, and, and um, they were running into a lot of trouble. And Wayan went and just laid it down in this banjar meeting and said, um, she had the best line, she was telling me about it later, and she said, and I told them, not your business if she's a girl and her girlfriend is also a girl. <laughs> not your business. Mm. You have to be kind to people anyway. And um, so she, it's just wonderful to see this person who was really struggling um, not only achieve a certain amount of security and stability in her own life, but then take that mm. power and use it to, to better the lives of other women as well. Mm. What about the impact of the film and the book on Bali? Because mm. I was there just after the filming had finished and everywhere there were t-shirts, yeah. you pray love t-shirts and there are tours, yeah. obviously, Eat, Pray, Love tours. So how do you feel about all of that? Ambivalent. Um, did you see the Eat, Pay, Leave t-shirts? <laughs> I like those better. They're very funny. Um, it's, you know, it's... Uh, Bali is a paradise that has been under assault for a long time. Um, and, and, I, and I know that uh, the expat community in Bali is certainly unhappy about the fact that that their private paradise has become a public paradise. Um, the Balinese that I've met are really grateful um, mm -hmm. because it's mm -hmm. provided an enormous amount of um, economic uplift for them, they, especially after the bombing. They mm -hmm. had really, there were people in very desperate straits and now all the drivers have jobs. And the, I mean, I can't credit myself with all of this, but they're not complaining. It's Westerners who are, who are complaining about it. <laughs> and it's it's Westerners who live there and who have that thing that we all have um, where we move to a neighborhood and then we don't want anyone else to discover it <laughs> after we've, you know, and so they all have that kind of sense of people who are like, oh, I remember Provence when it was a sleepy fishing village, um, you know, and, and they don't want it to be anything else. Mm. And I understand that. That's their home and, and they've made their home at it. I, I didn't expect for that to, you know, all I can ever say I don't generally try to go around defending myself because I think it just sounds weird, but um, I didn't mean to. <laughs> I didn't mean to bring everybody to Bali. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hope some good comes of it to, to deserving people. Mm, I'm sure it is. Um, just on that subject of, you know, people's reactions to things and complaining and, and, and all of that, you, you may know that um, uh, the Australian writer, critic and poet Clive James once wrote a poem called The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remainded. And I was wondering, uh, and the next line is, and I was glad, or I yeah. am glad. Um, and I was just wondering 
whether you've come across a lot of envy of your success in the writing community and in the general community, whether people have come up to you and said, I could have written about that. I could have written about going to Italy and eating pasta and going to an ashram and going to look for love in Bali. I could have done that, but I just didn't bother. I mean, I, have you... I do, I do hear that a lot. Um, or a kind of funny reaction is a kind of angry... Um, that's my story. <laughs> you know, um, which is like... A, it's, you get two ways of people mm. presenting that. One is, I felt like you were telling my story. Wow. Or... That's my story. I'm, I had a horrible divorce too, you know, um, and I'm always like, I'm not blocking your door. Write your book, you know. Um, feel free. It's, it, the, you know, uh, there, the, there's many more stories to be told. Um, uh, I think when something gets that much attention, it's going to attract all kinds of stuff. Um, and, but it's also, I feel like, you know, with what I have benefited from, you know, financially, creatively, mm. emotionally, you know, in every way, it's fair game. You know, that's kind of how I feel about it. It's like, take your shot at it. It's okay. It's a big book. It can handle people attacking it. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, once something gets up there, it's it's up there, and then mm -hmm. people, it's, it comes this big projection screen, and everybody projects either their love or their hate or their disgust or their distaste, and that's kind of their business. Um, and I don't really know if I should make it my business. Does it change any of the other more intimate and more personal dynamics with writers who are in your orbit? Mm. Or even, for example, in your family, your sister is a writer. Yeah. She's written many books for young adult writers. And yeah. what she says about you on her website is, um, my sister Liz is now a capital letter, very famous writer <laughs> who travels all over the world collecting stories and diseases not quite sure about that. While I stay home, <laughs> scowling over paint chips and trying to keep my kids off our garage. Yeah. So she's obviously joking yeah. there about the fact that you are the very famous writer. Yeah. But I'm just wondering whether in your, in your closer, in your more intimate circle, you've had to deal with envy that you suspect and that isn't completely overtly expressed? I, um, yes. Okay. But... Um, the reason I'm asking that is because there are some writers <laughs> in the not, audience who've asked me about that. Yeah, but it's not, um, it's not, it's not as much as, as you might think. I think the fact that my circle of friends have known me for so many years, and they knew me long before this, hmm. um, and they also know my admiration for them. Um, you know, as does my sister, who taught me how to write. You know, when I was a child, and who I've credited my entire life with being the, Scheher the Scheherazade in our family who just mm. spun stories and, and, and formed me as an author. Um, no one knows more than her how much I admire her. Um, and she'll always be my big sister who's better at everything. Um, so she can tease me like that. Yeah. You know, um, because we know, we know who's the real one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we know who's always been the... And, and so um, I think the fact that this this thing, this success and this stuff happened to me when I was closer to 40 than to 20 mm. means that for one thing, I've hoped that I've processed it as well as possible and that I don't rub it in people's faces in any way. And two, that the people who I've chosen to surround myself with by this point in my life are people of such decency um, that, that we don't base our relationships on competition mm. and resentment. Mm. Um, 
if I've had friends like that in my life, I don't have them anymore. Um, by this age, you get a sense of knowing if somebody has that in them and you cross the street, mm. you know. Um, <laughs> so, so I feel really protected more by my friends than I feel envied. As a result, again, of this kind of success and, and celebrity, you get invited to um, speak at a lot of conferences and events. And when I was looking at your website to see what you're doing after you leave here, I see that you're speaking at a women's leadership conference, I think, in the U.S. Yeah. And I was interested in the fact that this new phrase has come into being in the U.S., lean in, which is the phrase of Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook. And she says that the problem that women have had in the workplace in getting as far as they need to get is that they lean back whereas they oh. need to lean forward. Uh -huh. So this new phrase is gathering a kind of momentum, I suppose a little bit like destroying the joint does here. And I was just wondering whether you had a theory about this, this idea, this notion of leaning in and of empowering women and of women fulfilling their destiny. Um, that's an easy question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I, feel, I feel sometimes... Um, that I only ever have one message for women, you know, um, and that it's the same one all the time. And, and I don't know whether, I don't know how useful it is. I don't really understand. It's funny when I get invited to these women leadership things because I've never worked in the corporate world. Mm. Um, I don't have, I'm not struggling with the burden of a career and raising a family. Um, I, I've chosen a different path than that. I'm a childless artist. I really almost have no business speaking to people who are, leaning forward into those male-dominated business worlds. They invite me, I come, you know, um, <laughs> and I bring what I've got. And, and, and I feel like the only thing I've ever got to say is that we as women in the 21st century need to constantly maintain a very realistic perspective on how far we have come and how quickly and how tricky our position is right now. Um, there's just women are very hard on themselves and I feel like my message is, is constantly about trying to relax that grip a bit um, and one of the things I think that, that women in, in the states are hard on themselves about and I'm assuming that it's the same here is this um, perfectionism of mm. uh, you know why can't I make it work why can't I be fantastic at my career and a total success mm. at my marriage and a fantastic mother and a terrific neighbor and all these things that are somehow expected of me and why you know why does it appear that this is the model and I'm failing at, at that um, and and why am I exhausted and why am I confused and why do I have huge crises of conscience whenever I look at something that another woman is doing that's totally different from my life and suddenly I have to reevaluate whether I've taken all the wrong steps the entire time because her life looks a lot better than mine does and this is the dialogue that's kind of going on with all of us all the time and 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 all I can say is that it's so new what we are you know um women of 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 I say this generation, by which I mean any woman probably born in the last 70 years in the industrialized West, almost are a new species of human being. We don't have centuries and centuries and centuries of role models and mythologies to look back to at how you do it because no one ever was given what we were given. We don't have literate, articulate, financially autonomous, biologically autonomous um, women to look back at through history because they didn't exist. Um, it's, we're just starting, you know, and, and so of course we don't totally know how to do it yet. And it doesn't help that in my country, um, 
we are asked to be all these things, to be successful career women, to be mothers, to be wives, and the society at large also says, oh, by the way, we're not going to help you with any of that. Mm. Um, we're not going to give you any child care. We're not going to give you any health care. We're not going to do anything to help you with that. You just have to do it um, and make it look easy and stop crying. Um, why, why are you so sad and why are you taking antidepressants? What's the matter with you? Um, you know, and, and, and there's, there's just, I just feel like we have to take the long view um, you know, we're standing on the shoulders, I'm standing on the shoulders of women of the previous generation who took incredible risks for me to have the freedoms that I've got, but they're new freedoms. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's going to take us a while to figure out exactly how to do it. Is that leaning forward? I don't know. Um, but Standing it, straight. Standing straight, or, or maybe putting down the knife that you're holding to your own throat, mm. um, which, which I would certainly hope to encourage people to do. We've got about, um, according to this, we've got five minutes and 22 seconds left. Okay, so... 18. <laughs> 18. Given that that's the case, Relax. I would love it if you would tell us a little bit about the book that's in the foyer, your great-grandmother's cookbook, and also... Uh, perhaps a little bit about your novel, which is coming out in October. Cool. Okay. My great-grandmother's cookbook is a book I rediscovered when I was cleaning out my attic. I have an extraordinary great-grandmother, it turns out, who wrote a brilliant and hilarious cookbook that was published in 1947 in Philadelphia. She was a food columnist for the local newspapers. And I found this book, started reading it, and realized that she was so much more of our time than of her time. Speaking of of um, the, the freedoms that we've now got. Um, she would have been a fabulous writer of this generation, but she didn't have a voice then. So I've brought the book back into print and all the proceeds go to a wonderful educational charity called Scholar Match that helps send very promising kids from um, underserved communities to universities. So because of this new book being published, there are, uh, I think the number now is 25 or 26 kids in the States who were able to start college this year who wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So that's fantastic. Mm. So, and the recipes are terrific and she has a voice like Dorothy Parker. Um, she's just a delight. She's hilarious. <laughs> she's fantastic. Um, and then the novel is coming out in October. It's called The Signature of All Things and it is a period novel. It takes place um, in the 19th century and covers the, uh, the fortunes of a family who is involved in botanical exploration and the early basically pharmaceutical business. Um, takes place all over the world. It's a, it's a big, romping travel adventure, history, fun, sad. You'll laugh, you'll cry. Uh, uh, it has an Australian dimension to yes. it. Um, I've only been able to read the first chapter, but Joseph Banks is a character in the first chapter. So maybe yeah. you'd like to say how you decided that you wanted to write about him. Uh, well, I found a, another attic find. I think from now on I'm only going to write books based on things I find in my attic. But um, <laughs> a, a book that had been, belonged to my great-grandfather that had come down through the generations in my family. Um, an incredibly rare, beautiful um, 1780 volume of Cook's Voyages um, with the original ethnographic illustrations, the original bot botanical illustrations, the prints, the incredible scientific work that these guys were doing when they were traveling around the world on the endeavor. Um, and, uh, and so I became fascinated with that book. And, and, and as I started to study Cook, I realized that the, the much more interesting character was Banks, um, mm. in the same way that when you start to study Darwin, you find that the much more interesting character is um, Wallace. You know, like there's these sort of shadow, more charismatic people hidden in history. And, and so um, Banks becomes a, a very 
powerful figure in the beginning of the book, setting the destiny of the young man who's the patriarch of the family. Because it's interesting that the book has botany as as a theme. And I'm thinking of you growing up on your Christmas tree farm and the fact that I know that you like gardening as a kind of relaxation. And it seems that you've integrated all sorts of things and come back to the beginning, which is growing up in the country and yeah. and having your hands dirty and the sort of peace that comes from gardening, which is a very good um, uh, thing to do when, when you're not writing and, in fact, frees up your mind yeah. often so that the creativity comes to you while you've got your hands in the soil. Do you find that? Definitely. It's a, it's a fantastic um, alternative. It's something that you can generate um, that isn't intellectual. It's more physical, um, but it's still creative. And, and, and my mom always told us when we were growing up that any day that you don't put your hands in the earth is a day you're not living. Um, and despite the fact that I made every effort as a child to learn nothing from her, um, I... <laughs> accidentally learned a lot of really wonderful things and found when it came when I settled down and bought a house in the country and looked out the window of my kitchen and saw a patch of lawn and realized well that won't do um that that is now just this huge cottage garden um that that I accidentally had learned how to be a gardener despite really resentfully pushing back against those chores um and that I knew more than I knew I knew um, and, and so when I got into that and then found Cook's book and then realized, you know, just got very interested in the history of botany, um, it, it, it did seem to come full circle. We've come to the end of our time together. I hope you found it as inspiring as I have. Please join me in thanking Elizabeth Gilbert. Thank you. <laughs> Oops. Can we Thank you. Enjoy it while you can. (laughs) Thank you so much.